Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There are there the birds make their nests, The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There are ships, go, their ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you form to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wickedness be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Tegan. Um, if I mention 
the doctor, Dr. Stephen Strange. Who knows who I'm talking about? Yeah. One of the world's greatest, um, most revered, uh, arrogant neurosurgeons, I think it's fair to say, revered by his peers, sought after by his patients, a reputation for taking on only the, uh, the most interesting, challenging cases. After years of uh, hard work, his incredible talent and hard work together brings him to a point where he is uh, at the peak of his career. And yet one night, well, he's driving home, probably in his Tesla or something, he, uh, he looks at his phone briefly, sends a text message, and while distracted, suffers a horrific crash. His fingers are mangled, and as he wakes, he looks down at, in horror uh, at his hands, which are being reconstructed. Uh, everyone else knows at that point, it takes him a while to realise that he will never operate again. His days as a surgeon are gone. So uh, stripped of his work, he spirals, doesn't he? He lashes out at other people. He decides that there's no point in his life. And what's uh, telling, I think, about this story is that the people around Dr. Strange, they can see what's happening. They can join the dots between him losing his abilities as a surgeon and his uh, self-loathing and destructive uh, behaviour. They understand why losing his career is so destructive for his identity, how vain his efforts are to get back his skills, to get back his hands. Uh, A former lover, Christine, tries to persuade him that life without being a surgeon can still be livable. Many people live life who are not surgeons, but it doesn't work, right? His life cannot be meaningful anymore. He, He just won't believe that he can still have meaningful relationships. He won't believe that there is point to his life that there are other ways to save until he uh, meets Tilda Swinton, who um, helps him to realise what was probably clear to other people, which is that his motivation for being a doctor was never to heal others. It was all about himself. Anyway, he goes on to become a wizard and an (laughs) important figure in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's not a real surgeon. Don't look him up. Uh, He can't help you. Uh, For most of us, the option of becoming a wizard when we lose our identity and our career is not an option, but I think the point stands, it's, and it's quite a, um, I remember seeing the movie when it came out, a, a, a telling illustration of a, a thing about our relationship with work, at least uh, taken to an extreme. Most of us can't become wizards, um, and most of us aren't at the top of our field. But it is, uh, I think, a good illustration of attention in society, attention in the way that we stand with regards to our work um, as we continue, um, well, not we, it's my series, I'm the only one doing it, uh, but this series looking through basically life advice from Psalms, we come today to Psalm 104 and this issue of work and vocation, because while not everyone is a wizard, I think a lot of people struggle with this connection between identity and work. Last week I met up, uh, had a drink with an emergency doctor who I didn't know very well, but he, um, he explained that he'd been on a bit of a journey and had actually decided basically to quit medicine midway through his career. He's sort of a junior doctor. Uh, he'd spent many years training. But he'd come um, to a similar realisation to Doctor Strange, not the wizardry bit, but the disillusionment with his life bit. Uh, he deeply disillusioned with his work. Uh, he said he'd, he still enjoyed the medicine side, but the whole healthcare side was just uh, had just lost something for him. He realised the reasons he became a doctor were probably wrong. The the reasons that he worked so hard through med school and through the health system uh, were tied up. What was driving him was his identity, 
trying to prove something. To who I said, he just shrugged, he wasn't sure. The whole reason he became a doctor, the whole reason he was driven, it was all built around this idea uh, he now sees that his identity, uh, his fulfilment could come from his career. And, of course, that's a crushing, crushing burden. If only he worked hard enough, if only he got promoted, if only he became the self-actualized, passion-driven person that career counsellors, career guidance people tell us we should be trying to be. I actually asked him, I was interested, if this was, um, would have happened without COVID, because obviously the health system under a huge amount of stress, lots of people in his position. He said he think it would have, but it sped up the realisation. Going through COVID, realising just um, how hard his work was, how empty it was, he realised that he couldn't build his life around it. It couldn't be the source of his identity. I don't think he's the only person in Melbourne who is struggling with an unhealthy relationship with their job. Because the, the job sites, the articles on LinkedIn, the career counsellors tell us that in our work we need to look within. We need to find the job with the highest pay, the best conditions, but most importantly, the alignment with myself, my goals, my gifts, my passions. Find a job that so expresses and actualizes you that you wouldn't even have to be paid to do it. A job so kind of in tune with who you are that you would do it anyway even if you weren't getting paid. Now, if you find a job like that, thumbs up to you. But most people don't. I suspect for most of us, that's a setup for a deep, deep despair, like my friend and like Dr. Strange, but with less wizardry. Work uh, is a big part of our lives, and uh, it's appropriate, I think, for us to think about it theologically, um, even though in this room, uh, as ministers, people training in ministry, people um, who are... Um, training others in ministry. We don't often think of ourselves as workers, but we are. We are workers. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine last night who was asking me, what exactly do you do? I said, well, yesterday it was mainly answering emails and going to meetings. He was like, oh, same job as me. Uh, he's an anesthetist, but yeah, same job as me, going to, going to meetings and having emails. Most of life, most of life even in work, so most of work even in ministry is just answering emails and going to meetings. So there's a fair bit of work Uh, in common there. When I go to the office and mark your 30 Old Testament essays, which will be excellent, by the way, that's work. When I uh, change my daughter's nappies, that is work. (laughs) When I stay home all day playing fire trucks with my son, for him that's play. I assure you for me that's work. When you write essays, when you learn the Hebrew verb stems, when you apply for jobs, when you attend interviews, when you plan Sunday school, when you create something beautiful and true, That is work. And we see in Psalm 104 that work is actually connected to God because God is a worker. Let's have a look now uh, at this psalm, which begins with the creative work of God, God's work as creator. Verse 5, he sets the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You, change of pronoun, covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. It's God's work as creator, back from Genesis. Then uh, verse 24, we see it again. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. 
So that's God's work as creator, but God's work as creator doesn't end there with the Genesis 1 moment, Genesis 2 moment of creating the world. His work continues, we learn from the wisdom literature of the Bible, in his provision, his providing for, his sustaining of the inhabitants of earth. Verse 14, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their heart. I love this reminder about wine and bread, not just because I like both those things, but I just love the miracle being described here. Did you know in this universe, if you take old bread and leave it long enough, then these tiny little microbes, which exist as far as I can see purely for this job, will come and eat that bread and create right, either alcohol or sourdough, depending on the conditions. Now, is that not a miracle? Right? Is, is that not proof that God exists and loves Melbourne? That there are microbes that exist that just eat old food and create alcohol and sourdough. It's, it's, it's incredible. And yet that is the miracle that happens every day, whether you are prepared for it or not. God provides in his providence for his creatures, whether they're cattle or people. Wine to gladden human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread to sustain their hearts. Interestingly, though, how does God do this work? I mean, we've heard about the yeast, but there's other ways too. God provides food for animals and humans. Uh, verse 21, the lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. Uh, I like that image of a lion seeking its food. Sounds very orderly. Just a tip, if a lion's seeking its food from God in your direction, you probably should run away from that lion. Um, but the way that humans seek their food from God is slightly different, isn't it? Like the other animals, it seems that God just sort of lets it grow and they eat it. It's sort of like direct. But for humans, we have work. He makes grass grow for the cattle, verse 14, and plants for people to cultivate. Plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. We don't just get grass. We get a garden a garden for us to tend, plants for us to nourish and expertly harvest. My brother's a farmer. He can expertly harvest. I don't expertly anything. I just kill things. But the point is there. We are brought into God's garden to work. The people go out to their work, verse 23, to their labour until evening. So God's work in creation doesn't end there. It continues in his sustaining and provision of things in the world. And as creatures, we're brought into that work. We're invited into that work. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. So the old question, does God give you your food or do the farmers give you your food? And the answer is, of course, both, both together. Luther made a great discovery on this point or rediscovery on this point, if you like, that God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid, that famous Reformation uh, principle, that whatever your job is, it, it is a vocation. Whatever your task is, it's something you're called to do with skill as part of God's work of feeding humanity. And I really like this idea of us being invited into God's work. Uh, this week, my, um, my son and I built some cupboards. Neither of us are particularly skilled in it, so um, it was a fun expedition. I, I think probably... 
On my own, it would have taken me about an hour to do the work. But luckily, I had my son with me to help. He's five. Uh, so it only took about a week to, <laughs> to get the cupboards up and running with Josh's help. But it was so worth it just to see his just like delight in being handed a saw and a hammer and a paintbrush and the sheer terror on Steph and my faces as he wielded those things. But it was worth it to bring him into this work with me, this work of creating. That, I think, is an image of vocation, isn't it? That we're invited into what our Father is doing. And it's very important that we see this connection, theologically that we see and understand this connection. Years ago, I used to work uh, with a lot of university students and there would always come a point somewhere in the midst of their four-year master's degree in spreadsheets or whatever they were learning um, where they would just start asking the question, like, does this matter? Like, is this really sort of, you know, serving God? And sometimes that, that would be the start of a conversation about ministry, which is great. I had to reassure them that most of ministry is spreadsheets too, just the rostering kind. Um, so they were in good stead with their degree in spreadsheets. But you know, this conversation was a good one, right, to, to, to uh, provoke them to think about how their work fits with God because sometimes they wouldn't believe me when I'd say, well, actually what you're doing now is also God's work. It might be that God is calling you into full-time ministry, but what you're doing now is also God's work. Let's be clear about that. Like, no, it's not. I, I, I manage debentures or whatever. You know, I, that's a legal term, I think. Um, you know, I, I do fine. I mean, what? And it would be important, I think, to walk them through it. Right? Because it can be very hard in our economy when we're so specialised to see those links. Right? When you're a farmer, it's obvious. There was no food, now there's food, now people can eat. But sometimes you have to work it through. So I'd ask them, well, you, know, you, you believe the farmer is doing God's work, right? Well, yes, plants the seed, yeah. What about the contractor who helps harvest the crop? Right? Is that God's work? Yeah, okay. What about the truck driver who drives the, the crop from the farm to the distribution centre? Is that God's work? Well, yeah, I guess so. Okay, what about the logistics managers, buyers and supply chain specialists at the supermarket who make sure that the food gets up in the right place? Is that God's work? Well, I guess if you put it that way. Are retail workers who help you get that food home doing God's work? What about the urban planners and commercial real estate agents who make sure that there are supermarkets in that new suburb you live in? What about the accountants, the bankers, the investors, the regulators and the lawyers who make sure that there is money that you can spend, that there are fair-ish terms in the contracts? That's a lot of people to get you your wheat picks in the morning. And it's God's work. It might not be as obvious, particularly in the like end of that process, but it is God's work. A lot of different people. So the point is, unless your job is, I don't know, like building poker machines or running a pyramid scheme, <laughs> all right, you're doing God's work. Right? You're doing God's work. You're doing... Well, I'd say don't overthink it, actually, because... You're doing what God has called you to do for God's glory and the good of others with skill and perseverance, and that is work. That is God's work. If you lose that theological connection, it is soul-destroying, and I can tell you that because I've seen it very close up. Um, When I left school, I trained as a lawyer, and I worked very briefly um, as a paralegal, which is not nearly as exciting as it sounds. There was no, like, jumping out of airplanes. Um, It was doing basically the grunt work for lawyers. And I remember doing a secondment at a... Um, a company that had had a recent hostile takeover. That's when someone else buys you and you don't want them to. Now, they fired the CEO, obviously, the former CEO, but they couldn't find reason to fire the CEO's secretary. 
But she obviously was very loyal to the previous person and was uh, basically a terrorist within the organisation. They knew that, she knew that. Uh, she could not be trusted. But also we have these labour laws in Australia, which means you can't just fire someone for being loyal to their old boss. So her job the whole time I worked there was to sit in her old office with a copy of New Idea and some nail polish and wait until five o'clock. Now, for the first day, right, you look in, you think, oh, that's really fun. And she made a joke about it. Yeah, this is what I'm getting paid for now. She was being paid well. She had air conditioning, a comfortable office, new idea. Now, what more do you need? It's great. Didn't have to do any work. And I say by the f- second week, by the second week, it had almost destroyed her. Just the pointlessness of it. You lose that connection between purpose, right, between doing something useful for the world and your work, and you end up like her, just languishing. And one of the puzzles, I think, of our economy in Australia is that job satisfaction tends to track with jobs that are sort of towards the, the, front, the coal face, if you like, right, where you can see what you're doing. Like baristas, apparently in the research, have very high job satisfaction, much higher than barristers who get paid a lot more. But that extra hour or whatever, right, actually makes you less happy. All that money, but less satisfaction. Why? I think, I think well, a friend of mine actually is a pastor. He, his point is, well, you can see someone enjoy your coffee. It's harder to see a well-ordered, regulated society up close. So we need to make this connection. We need to see this connection. And I take it that our job as sort of professional Christians that's a joke, by the way. Don't think of yourself that way. Um, our job as teachers of the Bible, I think, is to help people see that connection in their life. To show, and this is a hard line to walk, isn't it? To show that life isn't meant to fulfill you and like the crazy Doctor Strange, find a job that fulfills everything that you ever wanted in your life. Sets, I mean, that, that's crushing. But also not to have pointlessness in work. To see the good that is done. Tell people, ask Sensible questions, not what are your passions? Who cares what your passions are? Right? I'm not, very few of us get paid to do our passions. Right? But where is their need? And what can you do? How can you be useful? And where is their opportunity that someone's asking you? Just simple questions like that, beginning with the need, what you can bring, and where there's opportunity. I think that's our job. The research says that two-thirds of Christian workers say it's clear to them how their work serves God. That was a Barna study a few years ago. Two-thirds of Christian workers say it's clear to them how their work serves God. So I think our job is to work on the other third, to help them see that, to find that joy. And I think a lot of people do. Um, as I was preparing this, I asked a bunch of my friends who are, are workers of different types uh, how they find joy in their work as a Christian. And they all mentioned these sorts of things. So Tony, a friend who's a software engineer, said that his joy comes from being able to have an idea, play with it, and bring it to something that leads me to sit back and enjoy the God-given pleasure of being a creator. It's a software engineer, creator. Uh, my friend David, who's a science teacher, writes that I've always considered my work to be a vocation, a calling to serve and love others. My pay is a secondary consideration. I feel blessed in that regard, even when I'm tired, which is often... Kara, who is a writer and theologian, puts it like this. I find joy in knowing that each task offered to God 
and in service to others is an act of worship. I delight in creating beautiful things, presentations, metaphors. I feel aligned with God's purposes when I discern a way forward for a client who feels stuck. And I smile with pleasure at a plate made clean, a load of washing folded, and a unit outline that I can imagine will deliver deep learning to students. And this is a particularly important connection, I think, to make because the Bible teaches us that work will be hard. We have the Psalms, but we also have the book of Ecclesiastes. And the uh, book of Ecclesiastes is a cheery book, um, (laughs) telling us basically that we will fail to transform the world the way we intend to in our work. We will fail, ultimately. Some idiot will come along, even if we succeed, and mess it all up. You don't know if the person who comes after you will be a fool or not. So even if you succeed in your work life, it's ultimately meaningless. Life is hard and full of many disappointments. On the plus side, it's very short. So you can take comfort in that. My friend Renee, um, she reflected this on her work for a very demanding and frankly ungrateful boss. In this season, my workday seems to consist mostly of patient negotiation with someone only able to communicate with pointing and various degrees of yelling, non-stop cooking of meals that are often thrown from great heights for fun, and wiping. (laughs) So much wiping. Yeah, she's a full-time mum, by the way. I have wrestled a lot with my identity these days to have gone to university and then become a stay-at-home mum. God sees me even in the exhausting, repetitive and often mundane moments where I question the value of everything that I've attempted to do. But she knows that what she is doing is valuable, that she's working alongside God in his masterpiece. And so nothing that she does, nothing that we do is in vain And I think that's very important that we teach. Because for most of us, we can't do a Doctor Strange. We can't find a new career as an evil-fighting wizard superhero. For most of us, that's not an option. But the Bible offers a way to understand our work. It's not our identity, but nor is it purposeless. The good news is you don't need the perfect job to find joy in God. The gospel tells us paradoxically that we find ultimate lasting joy in giving ourselves up for others, not starting with ourselves, but in giving ourselves up in worshiping God and serving others. Work's not going to be easy, and it's made harder, I think, that a whole generation has been taught to find our identity in our work, to find our value in our work in what we do. But the gospel offers something much, much better. That we are more than our jobs. We're children of God. We are loved by him. And because of Jesus' work on earth, we can be restored to him despite our failings and receive a calling in life that will echo out through eternity. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, thank you that you are the creator. Thank you that you are the one who sustains this world and feeds us in your providence. Thank you for all those who've worked to bring us our food today. We thank you for their labour, for their skill, and for their love for us, even though they don't know us. We pray that we would see uh, how our work is part of your purposes this day and find Uh, pleasure, find joy, find satisfaction even 
in its hard bits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.